This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. We have our pop music guru, Troy Smith, on at the end of this podcast to talk about the just-announced class of inductees for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and Tina Turner is among them. Good for that. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, and our chief political writer, Seth Richardson. Happy Wednesday. Yeah, thanks for having Happy me back Wednesday. on. we got some good stuff to talk about, so let's get to it. What are some of the big plans for Cleveland Hopkins International Airport if the city can come up with $2 billion needed for rebuilding the place? Lord Johnston, that's an enormous if. It's like we have these plans and they look all cool. We just need $2 billion. Right. That's the that's the big unknown, that the airlines are likely going to bear the bulk of this cost. And they're on board with the idea of renovating the airport. But the financing, as Susan Glazer, our reporter, put it, is unknown and tricky. Um, so any new construction is not going to start for years until the airline industry recovers from the coronavirus pandemic. But the idea is to focus on converting the airport, which was up till 2014, a hub where passengers would switch flights into a place that focuses on local passengers. So like the road in and out of the airport, they're going to improve that and make it easier. And they're going to update the 1950s kind of spider web of concourses and make it all make sense. At least that's the idea. Light-filled ticketing and concourse and gate areas, a more centrally located customs facility, expanded security screening, and I, an on-site rental car facility because right now you got to take a bus over to get a rental car. Well, that really won't affect re- you know the residents. This is supposed to be the local customer thing, and right. you know we're if you live here, you're not using rental cars. The the you know there is a wrinkle in this that that could make this more likely. Frank Jackson, as mayor, has been dead set against ever giving up any kind of asset. He views the airport as an asset even though it's an enterprise fund and the city gets no income for it and just has the responsibility for it. If you were to turn that into a regional asset, if you created a regional airport authority that drew on the resources of a 13 county area, you might be able to come up with a funding mechanism that takes that into the next generation. The, the, the problem is Cleveland can't afford to do it and the airlines aren't going to provide $2 billion. There's no way. They don't, they're just not going to do that. They're perfectly fine to fly into the hole and pit that that place is. But if you started with the next administration to say, look, let's start thinking about a regional airport and a regional air system that incorporates Akron-Canton and the county system and closes Burke, what could you do to fund that? Could you get a quarter percent increase in the gasoline tax in a 13 county area to start funding 
um, a world-class airport. That would be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. It would take regional collaboration. I mean, you mentioned Akron Canton Airport, which has been losing, you know, passengers and flights for years now after booming for a while. So, you know, it's hard in Northeast Ohio to get people to put aside their little fiefdoms and do what's best for the greater good. But there's a, there's an opportunity here. But we do have a new leader at the Greater Cleveland Partnership in Beju Shaw, who, who and the GCP has been talking about a regionalized air approach for a while. And look, the big block has been Frank Jackson. He just won't consider something like that. Maybe the person that replaces him will. And then the two billion becomes likely or or not likely, but more possible. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With Frank Jackson officially out of the mayor's race this year, who are the leading candidates to replace him and what are their pluses and minuses? Seth Richardson, you put together a piece looking at this last week. I think it published just before Jackson announced he wouldn't be running, but we suspected he was about to announce he would not be running. So where do we stand? Who, who do you think is leading and who is fading away quickly? Yeah, it's kind of hard to say who exactly is like a, the, the front runner, so to speak, because it is so early in the process and because each of these candidates does have some very distinctive, uh, you know, things going for them and some, you know, flaws that could prove very fatal, right? As it stands right now, you've got kind of five top tier candidates in the race with uh, City Council President Kevin Kelly, uh, former Councilman Zach Reed, Councilman Bashir Jones, State Senator Sandra Williams and uh, nonprofit executive Justin Bibb. Now there's always the wild card that's waiting in the wing that uh, everybody is kind of keeping an eye on, and that is former Mayor Dennis Kucinich. And, you know, when you look at each of these candidates, it, it is interesting that, you know, their, their flaws and pros don't necessarily overlap either. And that would be one way to kind of determine who, uh, you know, is sort of the front runner. But I think if we are sort of starting at the, the most traditional look at politics, I think you would kind of have to look at Kevin Kelly and say, okay, he's got a money advantage. He's probably going to have an infrastructure advantage. And, you know, he's run races like this. He's very familiar with, uh, you know, the, the local political landscape. That would seem to give him a big advantage. But all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Stop there, though, because because people have been talking about Kevin Kelly like like he's a legitimate contender. But. Kevin Kelly, while he is a policy wonk and has has bona fides behind him, he doesn't really have much in the way of charisma. And that Baldwin Wallace poll that came out a week ago had a whole lot of people in Cleveland not knowing who he is, despite despite his presence on city council forever and being council president for what, eight years now? Yeah, definitely. That that is going to be a drawback for him. And I mean, I think the other big drawback that he might face is that. You know, because he has been on council for so long, you know, what well, it, it can be both a blessing because he's, you know, going to be very informed about the issues, but it can also be a curse, right? Because he has angered, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of activists who are going to be high propensity voters. You talk about the, you know, um, uh, blocking the uh, ballot attempt to uh, repeal the Q funding. You talk about opposing SEIU's push for minimum wage. You know, the, that is a group that is very active in Cleveland politics. And when you kind of break it, you know, you, when you kind of look at each of these candidates, most often there's going to be kind of a continuation candidate, a status quo candidate, so to speak. And that might not be fair to apply to Kevin Kelly, but it's one that voters are probably going to associate him with because you know, if you look at the current administration, it's Mayor Frank Jackson. 
Kevin Kelly has been the council president for half of Frank Jackson's term. He just seems like a natural progression in that sort of political order. And if voters are really looking for a change, which is highly likely that that is going to be the political environment come November, that could really set him back quite a bit. Right. I, I look, I think the odds are against him. I think he's got a mountain to climb and I don't know that he can climb it. No, the, he might get through into the runoff if Dennis Kucinich does not run. And look, Dennis Kucinich loves that we talk about him. He loves to have his name <laughs> thrown about. But will he actually pull the trigger and go? I mean, what is he, 72, 73 years old? This is hard work and it's going to be very hard work in the next four years post pandemic. So, so while he's got us all buzzing and everybody talking when the deadline comes, does he actually go? I mean, he, as you pointed out in your story, he's not raising money really well. He's he doesn't have the powerhouse fundraising that the others do. And it separately, you have what appears to be this juggernaut in Bashir Jones. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, if I'm if I'm leaning one way or another, I am leaning that Dennis probably gets in because while he's not raising a ton of money, he is raising money. And that is sort of telling given a guy, you know, that old, because if if he's not running for this, what's he running for? Right. There's there's not much attention. (laughs) That that, that always could be. But um, I I don't know. I I don't feel like donors are going to want to give him that much money, especially high dollar donors. Right. It's not like he's getting a bunch of small dollar donors. He's getting money from you know, the Georges and, you know, other players like that. So I, I lean towards uh, Kucinich probably getting into this race. And I do think that makes it only one of Kucinich or Kelly is going to make the runoff if one of them is going to make it, right? That 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 seems to be pretty uh, conventional wisdom. And, you know, it will be difficult for Kelly to overcome that name ID issue since, you know, people are very familiar with Dennis. But you know, the other side of that is you look at the 2018 election when, you know, Kucinich right, ran right, against Richard Cordray. Let me interrupt you because we're going to run out of time. Let's talk yeah. about Bashir. Yeah, Bashir, that, that was very surprising in that Baldwin-Wallace poll that his name ID was so high, right? I think you could kind of expect that with uh, um, Kevin Kelly. And Zach Reed also had very high name ID just, be, you know, he ran in 2017. People were familiar with him. Bashir Jones, you know, had, you know, very high name ID. People were familiar with him. And he's he's pretty good on the stump if you watch him, right? He can really kind of get people, you know, excited and whipped into action. And his fundraising, while it hasn't been quite as high as everybody else, has still been pretty pretty healthy, all things considered. So I think he's going to put up a very serious fight. And he's got he's kind of in this sweet spot right now where he is, you know, both a change candidate, so to speak, but he's also on council. So he can kind of point to, you know, not just being this out of left field sort of candidate, right? The, the well, no experience candidate. I, I, I think you've got to put it in the perspective of he's been on the scene for only three yeah. years and has already got higher name recognition than all of the longtime veterans that have been around for a while. He is what Justin Bibb wants to be. He wants to be the, the young upstart candidate that comes out of nowhere and captures hearts and minds, except Bashir is doing it. And a little birdie told me he's got 400 K hasn't shown up in the campaign finance reports yet, but if he's got $400,000, he's, he's also a fundraising juggernaut. Yes. I think he, he's the, the surprise uh, out of this. And it's, it's going to be fascinating now that, that he's got this attention whether the under candidates start to to play attack dog. One more I wanted to talk about, Sandra Williams. Yeah, kind of a, a sneaky good candidate, I think, as far as like potential to win this race, right? When when I first heard her name, I was sort of questionable, like 
what you know does she really have the profile here but you know somebody pointed out to me that her district encompasses i believe 11 wards in cleveland so you know people are familiar with her name and she is able to raise money right she and she's going to be able to transfer some money she was very astute and raised a lot of money with the higher limits for the uh the state house limits which she can then transfer and not have to worry about the city limits because of a quirk in city uh the city charter um yeah, her big misgiving is probably, and I mean, also being the only black woman in the race, that is going to count for something, right? Especially as you see where the Democratic Party is going. Uh, her big misgiving, obviously, is going to be her connection to First Energy and uh, how that plays out. She's taken a lot of First Energy money over the years, and I don't think First Energy is necessarily going to be a popular entity in this no, year's race, no, all things considered, right? Um, that's your downfall. And if more is, information yeah. comes out about that, then that could really hurt her. Although that could hurt Dennis, too, because he's taking money from the Georges, who are yeah. very close to First Energy. I think the First <laughs> Energy issue will damage both of them if they uh, they step in to run. Well, you're, uh, this is your job for the year, so we'll be talking to you often as we uh, get through this campaign to find out what the latest is. Uh, interesting stuff ahead with Frank Jackson, officially out of the race. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the Cleveland Botanical Garden in danger of closing down based on an Ohio Supreme Court ruling? Laura Johnston, this is a fascinating case about deed restrictions and whether the Botanical Garden, where it sits, violates them. Yeah, it is. And it's not clear what happens whether this when this case is decided to the Botanical Garden. But it dates back to 1882 when Jephthah Wade, who, as you know, Wade Oval is named after him. He was a founder of the Western Union Telegraph and the Case Institute of Technology. He donated 73 acres of open green space and woods to the city of Cleveland for a park that would, quote, benefit all people and be open at all times to the public. So this stayed like that for a long time, but in 1964, the city leased a section to the Cleveland Botanical Garden. Uh, this lease at the time stated that the garden wouldn't close or barricade any part of the park and it wouldn't charge admission. That lasted until the 90s when they began a capital campaign to expand the building space and build a glass conservatory. And then they started charging in 2003. So um, they've collected about $13 million over the years. And the, the heirs of Wade say, no, you shouldn't be charging anymore. And so we've been through a trial court that had one decision, said it was um, the use of the property was in line with the original deed. Then the 8th District Court of Appeals reversed the decision. And now they had oral arguments at the um, Ohio Supreme Court. And th th the question is, you know, will they, you know, would they close it? Would they open it to the public? The answer isn't very clear. Yeah, and probably what would have been best is if the people that run the museum negotiated something with the heirs to come to the heirs and say, look, this is a, a good thing for Cleveland. It's a great museum and children come here. And if you feel we're in violation, how can we work out a compromise that would that would fit with you? Could we make it free for Cleveland residents for a month every year? What well, you know, Something. But mm -hmm. to go to a showdown like this shows a. Uh, a problem that 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 and and the results could be catastrophic although uh, seth richardson you you dealt with uh, laura hancock on this story yesterday it seems like some of the questions for the supreme court justices were favorable to the museum yeah i, I it, it did seem to lean that way that they were you know asking about well you know, public parks often have curfews. So does this mean that this has to be open 24 hours a day and is that unreasonable um 
yeah, it'll be it'd be kind of interesting to see how this uh, this sort of lays out. And it wasn't it wasn't along partisan lines either. That that should also be clear. So I, I don't know that we necessarily know one way or another how the Supreme Court's going to go on this. Well, and as the chief justice points out often, they do not make decisions based on their political parties. So this week in the CLE, how is Ohio changing the rules for people on unemployment? And what does Senator Rob Portman say should be the next step? Seth Richardson, all of a sudden, there's lots of open jobs and the people in government are taking aim at all the people that are collecting unemployment. Yeah, so uh, Governor DeWine is going to, uh, Ohio is going to reinstitute work search requirements for uh, people who've been receiving jobless benefits since before December 6th. That had been on pause for a while, uh, basically meaning that if you are on unemployment, you have to show proof that you are looking for work. That had been on pause as the uh, coronavirus, you know, surged really, you know, badly uh, over the winter months um, with it kind of receding a little bit. This is probably the first step that you're going to see the state take in kind of um, getting rid of some of those benefits um, or at least restricting them slightly. And, uh, you know, yeah, Senator Rob Portman, he's been, you know, kind of on about this for actually a while. And uh, he is, you know, he wants the state to join, uh, you know, a couple of other states who are getting rid of the extra unemployment, you know, pandemic uh, unemployment relief um, of $300 or um, $600 a week. He wants to get rid of that to try to convince people to go back to work. Um, that That is uh, a, a little surprise. I don't know that DeWine would necessarily consider that right now, but I think if you look at the way things are trending, it is probably going to happen sooner rather than later. Well, actually, I thought the this round it's three hundred. Is it six hundred? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Three hundred. Yeah, yes, three hundred. Yeah, and Portman's also suggesting take that away, but give people a hundred bucks a week to go back to work for the first six weeks, which is which is interesting. What gets lost in this debate, though, is that a lot of the the employers that are whining that they can't find people pay beans. They don't pay much, and so people don't want to go work for nothing. They don't want to go work for for nearly poverty wages. And I wish that the that the people in government that are that are complaining about this would advocate that the, the fast food places and the others raise their wages and give people a respectable wage. You want them to come work, pay them for it, because I think people learned in the pandemic, I don't want to work to to stay in poverty. And, you know, we're not having that conversation. We're just having, well, there's lots of jobs and we got lots of people on unemployment. Let's shove them together. And it takes away the free choice of people that are saying, yeah, well, I don't want to work for minimum wage uh, 40 hours a week and live in poverty. Yeah, I was, I, I was reading ahead. a column yesterday, I believe Mark Beeson wrote it and, you know, was, you know, really just railing against uh, the unemployment system. And he quoted the uh, the head of Fazoli's, the Italian food chain, who was saying that you can, if you can make more money on unemployment than Fazoli's, why would you work at Fazoli's? And I'm just kind of, you know, I studied economics in college and I, I'm just kind of sitting here like, well, this seems like a kind of a pretty basic supply and demand curve that's going on here. Um, so yeah, I, I, it'll be interesting to see how that conversation ramps up as well. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. We've got a very special guest on this morning's podcast. It's the day of the Rock Hall class induction announcement, and we have our pop music guru, Troy Smith. Welcome to the podcast, Troy Smith. Thanks for having me. Always my one of my favorite days of the year when they announced the class for this year at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And this is this is 
by you know by and large a really pretty great class this show will go on until 5 a.m because there's so Man. many people but how about running through uh all of them and this is weird because they created some bizarre categories but how about running through it and then let's go through them sure um i mean i could start with the the five the six performance uh inductees which is that you know that's like the main event right like you know um these are the acts that were nominated and then they were voted in by the voter base you have jay-z the go-go's tina turner carol king um you have uh, todd rundgren who has been nominated uh, a few times and then foo fighters who along with jay-z are first ballot hall of famers so my bet is that you you're not taking issue with any of those. I mean, Carol King seems a little odd. She had one big album and is not really considered. Yeah, she's already rock. in. She's already in as a songwriter. Um, but Tapestry was such a big album. I don't have a big problem with it. I'm not a huge Todd Rundgren guy. I think he's more of a studio kind of producer type. But if you take his whole career, he's definitely got an argument to be in the rock hall in some fashion. The rest, no brainers to me. Well, I that I'm still disappointed that Tina Turner wasn't the first woman to be. Yeah, it was. Known. It was set up there. You know, it's it's so. She's in though. She was until this. She was in the rock hall with you know the guy that she was attached to because he tortured her basically for 16 years. It's you know she didn't get the just due in terms of her legacy as a solo superstar. So she's finally finally getting that. She she look she's just one of the true icons of of music. I mean, you, you put her up there in the pantheon and the fact that she's not blows your mind. The, the idea that everybody knows she just, they just had the documentary on HBO that really went into it. And it was this tragic moment. You wrote a great piece about it, but the tragic moment where she basically says it has not been a happy life and, and none of the other stuff, none of my success changes that it was a tragic life. And it's heartbreaking because she brought, joy to so many people and you look at the the stadiums filled like the rolling stones were playing except they're there for tina turner and she packed them in she put it all out there she you know drenched in sweat by the end of her shows one of the best performers of our lifetime yeah and you're looking at you know tina turner even if they do manage somehow to get her to come i think it would take a huge name like a mick jagger or someone um to induct her. I don't think she's coming, but it'll be nice to see her via video. I mean, if she did come, we're looking at, look how big this ceremony would be. You know, Jay-Z is obviously an icon, current icon. Food Fighters is probably the biggest rock band in the world for the last decade and a half. Um, and then you have, you know, these side acts of Carol King has a lot of respect, but you know, those are such big names and it's all taking place in Cleveland in October. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if she came, she wouldn't perform. She hasn't no. performed in quite some time. Uh, she's had some health I issues. I just want to say Beyonce, you know, you call Jay up and say, Hey, we want Beyonce to induct Tina. I'm just playing the strategy game here, trying to get as many people as possible <laughs> <laughs> to this ceremony. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's, it's there, there've been years where you look at the class and you think, Hey, okay, th this is pretty powerful. All right. So let's go through some of these other categories because there are people being inducted who are never on a ballot <laughs> it's it's unique because obviously as you remember there was that year they put in all those uh backup groups you know the crickets and the, and the hollies like those groups that didn't get in with the artists you know the famous flames for james brown that was a unique year this year they've just gone ahead on their own and expanded it as you said with these acts that some of them were never nominated and they're just getting in you have uh, clarence avant 
the Black Godfather, that documentary came out on Netflix in 2017. He founded Sussex, Sussex Records. He's had hands in pretty much every aspect of the music industry. No one who knows music, and that's sort of an insider thing, is going to doubt his you know, worthiness. But then we get into these other two categories, uh, but we can start with music, your musical excellence. That's an award that the rock, it started <laughs> as like a side, like it was for side acts. And then they changed it to artists that basically the rock hall wanted to put in that the voters wouldn't put in. <laughs> That's what it's become. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so who is it? We have Billy Preston, and you and I have talked. Uh, obviously, phenomenal session musician. There's only, I think, five people that have ever been credited on a Beatles song that weren't one of the four Beatles, and he's one of them. Um, but that was random. Randy Rhodes, Ozzy Osbourne's guitarist, who is kind of like, I hate the metal people are going to kill me, but like a poor man's Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> I mean, to be honest. And then, then you have LL Cool J, who has been nominated six times as an artist. I think LL Cool J should be in the Rock Hall. This doesn't make sense to me, though. This sort of let's just put him in. They did the same thing with Nile Rodgers a couple years ago because Sheik couldn't get in. So they just put him in. And again, another artist I thought should have been in. I, I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> Well, you know, like you said, he's in, right? So that that's the good thing. But why why is he not being inducted with the class? Look, Billy Preston, I'm, that that's a good one. He wasn't on the ballot, and all of a sudden his name pops up. And you, you can look at him as music royalty. I mean, right, he played with the Beatles. He was in a recording session with the Beatles. He's been involved with all sorts of other sessions over the years. So, yeah, very cool. He's the um, definition of what that award originated as. These artists that are unsung heroes – who played in such played in backing bands, you know, he's really ideal for this category. It's just, you know, when you're putting LL Cool J, my question, and we could tell, we're going to go on. There's another category that they've expanded. What does it say about your voter base when you have to put these artists in? I think the rock hall still has to address a problem with this massive voter base that they've just given out votes. Like it's Oprah giving away cars. (laughs) So, so the, the top five, six that we talked about they they were the vote winners did tina turner win the fan vote she did she fela kuti who you know the african pioneering musician um for world beat and other sounds he was in the lead for a while and then the tina documentary dropped and just boom she was in second and then she took that over so yeah tina turner won that those six acts are out of the 16 that were nominated on the ballot that over a thousand voters which is insane uh voted for and those are the six to get in but you know as we go to the Early Influence Award. Here's another award that was supposed to be originally meant to be for artists that predate rock and roll. So Charlie Patton, as you know, you're familiar with the roots of American music. No brainer, right? Right. Um, the Del- king of the Delta Blues. Rock and roll doesn't exist without him. Right. Uh, but then we got Kraftwerk, who's been nominated pretty much every other year for the last decade. Uh, electronic music pioneers, they couldn't get in on the vote. So the rock hall here is sort of creating their own way of putting them in. And then Gil Scott Heron kind of comes out of nowhere, to be honest. I don't get that one. That one, I just, that throws me. I'm not sure what the logic is there. I do get craft work because every time they've been nominated, there have been people like Mike Norman, our arts and culture editor, who said they, they should be in there. They, you know, they're, they're they're pioneers. They made a difference, very passionate, but they're never going to get in because they're just don't have that, voter appeal so that that makes sense what do you think 
was behind Gil Scott Heron? Is it just somebody in the Rock Hall hierarchy <laughs> that, is, that is special to him or something? I mean, if you look at everything that's happened with police brutality, George Floyd, the Rock Hall even did their own, you know, uh, exhibit about social issues social consciousness he was featured in that um and then with them putting in these hip-hop artists like tupac shakur and notorious big you know public enemy years ago he's considered you know a precursor to hip-hop so he fits in sort of i could see the actual people from the museum whether it was greg harris or someone and he could talk about this if he wants being the ones to push for that the issue I have is while I have Gil Scott Heron on my list of snubs, he's like in the fifties. Um, I wouldn't have, you know, he wouldn't have been my pick if you just gave me free will to pick an early influencer. The other thing too is his biggest selling point is that he's a pioneer for rappers. He never liked being associated with rap. <laughs> he famously quoted saying, I don't think you can blame me for rap. There wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good. That is that's interesting. Yeah. All right. So, so the one that you're not crazy about in the top group is uh, Rundgren. You you just don't think he's. I'm just bored with the these. I, I you know I've said it publicly, so I'll just say it here as well. I'm not for these B C level '70s classic rockers. I prefer A list '80s, A list '90s, and frankly, we're getting close to the 2000s at this point. But. You know, I'd rather see a Rage Against the Machine. I'd rather see an Iron Maiden. You know, I'd, I'd rather see these bigger acts from their eras. But whatever. I respect Todd Rundgren. He's worked on some incredible albums. Um, I just, he's meh. He bores me. It just he, bores me. He was a staple of the 70s FM radio scene. For sure. Right? He's got yeah. hits. People need to so, stop bringing up that Meatloaf album, though. That's not working in his favor in terms for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, but I, but again, he's he's been kind of out of out of memory for. He also hates for, the rock hall. Yeah, that's true. We'll he, get another Steve Miller rant. He won't who, come, right? He, he they always he, say that. <laughs> but he has criticized it pretty steadily for five years. You know, you mentioned Rage Against the Machine. I didn't even think of that. They were they they still aren't in. I mean, they're nominated fairly regularly, right? Yeah, they were nominated again. I think it was their third nomination, maybe, and. Look, the Rock Hall is touting this as you're going to see the headlines and the the leads for people reading the press releases as the most diverse class in the history of the Rock Hall. I saw a bunch of BS. I mean, when you look at those six acts that were voted in, there's 13. Uh, I'm sorry. I think there's, look, you have two black people, right? You have five white members of the Foo Fighters, five white members of the Go-Go's, and then Carol King and Todd Rundgren. So it's, it's 12 to two. Um, wow. And, and then they put in you know, these other acts to make it more diverse, which is fine. But again, it the, there's a, the Rock Hall still has its issues. They're trying to promote diversity. And I appreciate that. But like I said, when you're having to expand categories and make up things as you go on a little bit, but you do have a problem with the, the disconnect between the nominating committee, who has done a pretty good job, and then the voters themselves. Yeah, maybe they need to pull back a lot of the ballots and, <laughs> and, and try and get, well, try and get a new generation of voters. I mean, you still I'm have with a, lot you. Of, a lot of people that were listening to FM radio in the 70s making the call, which is where you get Todd Rundgren. Um, so you think it'll be a very long show with all these these acts, right? Longer you know, than normal. I was thinking about taking a nap today just so I start conserving energy. <laughs> all right. And this is the first one that'll be in the arena instead of public hall, right? Yeah, and that's a key thing, I think, for on a local level. Assuming that the pandemic keeps strolling along with vaccines and stuff, let's say you get a full arena or close to a full arena, 
this will be the biggest audience uh, that will have attended a rock hall ceremony ever. And we're talking about, forget the economic impact, because that can be a vague number. We're talking about millions of actual dollars, tangible money from tables, about four times as many tables that go for hundred grand a pop, suites, seats. I mean, the rock hall is going to make a lot of money on this if, if all things go well. Right, because in the past few, they've sold out early, and then people were just out of luck and couldn't get in. At least a lot more people be this able to get in. Foo I mean, at the end of the day, what's the worst case scenario? Your headline, you, you're going to a Foo Fighters concert. <laughs> like, <I> mean, <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah. I'll go. I'll, I'll do it. But I mean, the potential. If you could convince Jay Z to perform, um, you get Tina Turner to make an appearance, whether it's video or not. Look, this is going to be a big, big ceremony in Cleveland. Big show. All right. Thank you, Troy. Check out Troy's writing about the Rock Hall inductees. He'll be rolling out stories over, well, months now until the uh, show hits. Thanks a lot, Troy. Thanks. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We had some great conversations today. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Troy Smith. Come back tomorrow for another episode of the podcast.